0: Well, friends, we are back in Paul's letter to the Romans this morning. And I don't know if this is breaking all the like preaching homiletical rules or not, but I'm going to do a little bit of application for an introduction. And then we're going to look to the letter of Romans. So Paul, if you remember, had written in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, that the Old Testament bears witness to righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul had written that the Old Testament bears witness to righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, he's going to show that yet again in our text today. He considers Abraham from the book of Genesis. He does this in order to demonstrate that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. And he also cites the words of David from the Psalms, who, Paul says, also speaks of this righteousness apart from works. Now here's the question for us. Is this how we read the Old Testament? When you open your Bible and you go to the pages of the Old Testament, Is that how you read it? There are a lot of ways that people approach the Old Testament that are not helpful. For many, the Old Testament is kind of like a wasteland or a desert. I mean, we're pious people, so we wouldn't say it like that, right? But it kind of feels like that. Not a lot of refreshment, not a lot of life, frankly. There's an occasional oasis Sure, but it's mostly law and threats and hard stuff. For others, they go to the Old Testament and moralize the text. This is where we sort of put our backpacks on and we follow the Old Testament saints around and we figure out how we can be like them or not like them. Others approach the Old Testament with a law-centered mentality where we're digging through every text to find what we're supposed to be doing or not doing. And with all of these approaches, people might look for an occasional prophecy about the Messiah, might look for the occasional passage of promise or grace or comfort. But in a general sense, the Old Testament is hard. It's about our morality, and it's about law. The problem with all of this is that this is not how Jesus himself presented the Scriptures, and this is not how the apostles understood the Scriptures either. Remember, for Jesus and the apostles, the Bible was the Old Testament, At this time, whenever Jesus references the Scriptures, whenever the apostles reference the Scriptures, with perhaps one exception where Peter refers to a writing of Paul, they're talking about what we call the Old Testament. And for them, the Old Testament was a testimony about Christ and about God's plan of redemption through him. I'm going to assume something about you and me. Fallen sinners as we are, that's true. We have been brought to life by the Spirit of Almighty God. We have been united to Christ. We have new hearts. And so we want to be people of the book, do we not? Yes, we want to live not based upon our own understanding. We want to be people of the book. So may we read it and may we understand it the way that Jesus and the apostles did. There's much that could be said about a passage of Scripture like Luke 24. You know that account where Jesus is walking with disciples after His resurrection. Obviously, His crucifixion, His death, His burial. He's resurrected from the dead. He walks with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has a conversation with them. They don't recognize Him. They're telling Him about what's going on and what has been going on. He plays the fool. And then He says to them, Oh, foolish ones, right? And slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have written, right? And then he talks to them about what? All of the things written in the Old Testament concerning himself. Now, they break bread together. They eat together. And Jesus was known to these disciples in the breaking of the bread. There's much that could be said about that. And then these same disciples, having their eyes opened to Jesus, who he is, what he had done, in light of Scripture, said this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? Did our hearts not burn when he opened to us the Scriptures? Now, beloved, how did he do that? He interpreted the entire Old Testament in light of himself. That's how their eyes were opened, that's how their hearts were set ablaze, and he was known to them in word and sacrament. Let the hearer understand. As the Lord would have it, Paul does the same thing that Jesus did in Luke 24, Paul does the same thing in our text today. So that all by way of introduction. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at Romans 4, 1 to 8. Where we are picking up today is a wonderful continuation of everything that's come before it. Paul had announced, you remember, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. It's a righteousness that God gives to sinners that is all of faith. And so, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul then went on to demonstrate convincingly at some length that this way of salvation is necessary for all men. Why? Salvation through faith in Christ is the only hope for mankind. Why? Because all human beings are under sin and are therefore guilty before God, incapable of being justified by their own obedience. Paul then went in hard on the righteousness that God has provided for sinners through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 4, Paul is going to strikingly illustrate these truths. He knows what he's doing. It's brilliant by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He appeals first to the example of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people who was held in the highest regard. And then he confirms the truth of what he's arguing using the testimony of David, Israel's great king. Let's look now to Romans chapter 4. And listen now as I read. This is the Word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. We thank God for His Word. A huge question that we should ask that I think is underneath a good bit of what Paul is writing here is this. Is there a possible exception to what Paul has been teaching? In particular, in the latter part of Romans 3. Is there a possible exception? Is it possible that there was a person justified by works? Is that conceivable? And this is why Paul goes directly to Abraham. The Jews held Abraham in the highest regard. He's the great patriarch, a man of holiness, the head of the nation of Israel, the friend of God, in whose offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. Remember, the Jewish people often appealed to Abraham and gloried in being Abraham's children. Think John 8. In a dialogue with Jesus, a Jewish audience repeatedly appeals to Abraham at effect to justify themselves. The Jews, therefore, could not ascribe more holiness to themselves than they would ascribe to Abraham. If he was justified freely on account of Christ and his righteousness alone, then how foolish is it? for his descendants to claim a righteousness of their own under the law. And then, as though to double down, Paul cites David. Again, another man the Jews held in extremely high regard. David, the great king of Israel, the father of the Messiah, according to the flesh, right? The great type of the Christ. A man after God's own heart. Paul proves the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works by appealing to the history of Abraham and to the authority of David. That's what he's doing. If Abraham had not been justified by works, but by having righteousness imputed to him, counted to him through faith, if David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declared that the only way a man can be justified is by having his sin covered by the imputation of righteousness, who could ever think that righteousness is to be obtained in any other way? That's what Paul's arguing for. So my plan for the rest of our time today is to first consider the example of Abraham. We'll spend a good bit of time there. Then next, we'll consider the testimony of David. And then we will conclude with some additional like heart-mind-level Application. So the example of Abraham, the testimony of David, and then a conclusion. So the example of Abraham, verses 1 to 5. In verse 1, Paul refers to Abraham as our forefather. You see that in the text. So we should understand that Paul here, he's writing as a Jewish man to Jewish people in the church of Rome. Now, having said that, later on in chapter 4, Paul will make it very plain that the example of Abraham is applicable to the entire church, Gentile and Jew alike. So don't get tripped up by that. But when he says our forefather, that's what he's referring to. Paul asks a rhetorical question. What shall we say was gained by our forefather Abraham according to the flesh? Paul has in view... Abraham's works in the flesh. What did he gain? What did he gain through what he did, through his works? He's going to answer that question. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Here is the sense of that verse. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. We understand that. He did something. To contribute at least to his justification, he can claim that. That's clear enough. Implied there in verse 2, but as it stands, he does not have anything to boast about before God. Not before God. He will not boast. And so it is plain that he was not justified by his works. In other words, Abraham did not have any works. He did not have anything of his own that he could take into the court of divine justice and based upon which he would be rewarded. Verse 3, Paul is going to prove this. In verse 3, Paul appeals to Scripture. What does the Scripture say, he asks. And in saying that, it becomes very clear that for Paul, an appeal to Scripture is an appeal to the highest authority. This is because to Paul, the Scripture is God's inspired record right? He makes the appeal here the way he does as though to say, hey guys, God himself in his word, God himself in his testimony has decided this matter. What does the scripture say? What did God say? And he cites Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. A question here. What was it that Abraham believed? What did he believe? In short, we could answer that he believed the promise of God. Fair? In Genesis chapter 12, we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name is changed, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul writes of that verse in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3 and verse 8, Paul says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And he cites Genesis twelve three. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the promise of what is called the covenant of grace. This is the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one. The gospel was preached to Abraham. And then later in Galatians 3, Paul makes it very clear that the promise, the gospel that was preached to Abraham would be realized through Abraham's promised offspring, singular. Not offspring, many, Physical descendants, but offspring, singular, who is the Christ. John 8, I've mentioned it already today. A lot of interesting interchange in that chapter. Jesus says some things about how if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Talking about himself. People needing to be set free from sin and death and all this. And his... There we go. Everybody's awake now. This is good. Not that you weren't before. But he's telling them all these things, and they respond to him like, "Uh, what do you mean we will be free? We're Abraham's children. We've never been enslaved. I mean, the judicious reader would be like, hey, fam, what about Egypt, right? I mean, that, that was slavery, right? But beyond that, Jesus interchanges with them, and he says, on the one hand, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, according to the flesh. But then two verses later, he says, if you were Abraham's offspring, you would believe what I'm saying. Spiritual children of Abraham. That's kind of just for the interested listener to set the context. But the interchange goes on. And the Jewish people keep appealing to Abraham. They keep appealing to their relation to Abraham to justify themselves. And where does Jesus take the interchange? He says in John eight fifty six. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The gospel was preached to Abraham. The message of salvation through Christ was preached to Abraham. It's what Abraham believed. He saw it and was glad. So if Abraham was justified because by faith he embraced the promise of God's salvation in the person and work of Christ, then Abraham has nothing to boast about. Abraham was trusting the promise that God had made, realized through God's Christ, and that is how Abraham was justified. He brought nothing of his own. His was a position of need. Verses 4 and 5 as we look back to Romans 4. Paul's argumentation here is very simple and it's very pointed. If a person works, the money he receives is not a gift. It is his due. He has earned it. We understand this. If you do work and you're given money, you don't look at that money as a gift of grace. You look at that as not, I'm being paid what I deserve. For work done. But God does not justify us because it is what we have earned. God does not justify us because it is our due. God does not justify us based upon our work that would then have merited salvation. He gives salvation. He gives righteousness and eternal life as a gift. You can see this in verse 5. And to the one who does not work. This is very simple. The one who is justified does not work at all. I mean, you want to offend people. The one who is justified does not work at all for his justification. That makes everybody very nervous. It may make us nervous like, bro, I don't know if you should say that. If there's any doubt, though, that this is the meaning, what comes next drives it home. That we don't work at all for our justification. To the one who does not work, but what? Believes in, trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I'm going to say something that is not a startling revelation to anybody in the room. But it does us good to think about this. You don't need a concordance. You don't need to know the original languages to understand that throughout the Scriptures, the term ungodly is applied to wicked people. It's never used about good people. It's applied to wicked people. Now, that's a thing that we need to grapple with and think through. I remember talking one time to a group of high school students. This has been years ago at this point. These were Christian high schoolers. And I asked them, I said, among your peers, among your friends, how do you think Christianity is most misunderstood? And one young person, I mean, five seconds later, one young person says very confidently, they think that Christianity is about what we do. The saints, that young person was on something. That is a very common perception of the faith. What's even more lamentable is that there are many people who sit in churches across this land Sunday after Sunday, who think the same thing. That Christianity is about us and what we do. There is a reason, after all, that outsiders often think that Christianity is about what we do. It's because that's what Christians have told them, or that's what Christians have implied to them, and those Christians have said that and implied that because pastors have told them that. God justifies the ungodly. That is an astonishing statement. Do you realize? Like, do you realize how different that is from any other system of religion? Do you realize how different this is from Rome? Do you realize how different this is from Judaism, from Islam? All of which effectively say God justifies the godly. What makes Christianity utterly unique from every other world religion, beloved, is not its morality. It is its message. Now, the law of God, I just want to be super clear that nobody walks out of this door misunderstanding a thing today. The law of God understood at a spiritual level, think Matthew 5, is the greatest standard of righteousness the world has ever known. We love the law. We love the law. But do you know what the church, the lifeblood of the church, the heartbeat of the church is? It's... The proclamation, the heralding of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ for us. His righteousness, his bearing our curse and our shame, his resurrection. Hear me, the historical fact that he did all of this and that he is salvation for everyone who believes on his name. T. David Gordon once said, bring someone from Tibet into your church who has never been to church ever and let them listen to the sermon and then ask them, what is Christianity all about? And inevitably, they will say, do, be good. Beloved, that's not gospel. That's not Christianity. As it stands God justifies the ungodly on account of Jesus Christ. So trust Him. Believe upon Him. And in believing in Him, you will have life in His name. We're going to stay here for just a minute and spend some more time considering faith and righteousness as well as the law. So this is all still under the example of Abraham. Some really important things for our understanding here we go. Faith is not meritorious. Faith is not meritorious. Faith does not procure any kind of merit for us. Faith in itself. Rather, faith lays hold of Christ. You understand the difference? Faith has no merit in and of itself. It is the object of faith that matters. Faith lays hold of Christ. And in laying hold of Christ, faith lays hold of forgiveness. Atonement for sin. Satisfaction of the wrath of God. Absolution. No longer guilty. In laying hold of Christ, faith lays hold of righteousness. Faith is the means, hear this, faith is the means through which the ungodly, are clothed in the righteousness of another. In laying hold of Christ, faith lays hold of eternal life. You understand as well, right, that the benefits of Christ can never be separated from Christ Himself? You understand that? Whenever we start trying to do that, bad things happen in the church. As though there can be forgiveness apart from the person of Jesus as though there can be absolution apart from being united to the person of Jesus, as though there can be righteousness and eternal life apart from Jesus himself. This is why rightly understood, Christ is the good news. He is who we trust. And in trusting him, we're united to him. In being united to him, what's his is ours. This is how we need to think. Next thing that's very important for our understanding this is related. Faith itself is not righteousness. It is the means through which we receive righteousness. So say that again. Faith itself is not righteousness. It is the means through which we receive righteousness. We talked about this before. What is righteousness properly defined? It is the fulfilling of the law. So faith is not righteousness. It is the means through which We receive righteousness precisely because faith is the means by which we receive Christ. Our confession says this well. Later on today, you could look this up. In the Second London Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 1. We read that God freely justifies sinners, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. It's not that faith is counted as righteousness. It's that the righteousness of Christ is counted to you by faith. And you say, brother, this is kind of, you're like splitting hairs here, aren't you? No, not at all. These things make all the difference in the world when it comes to our lives, our peace before God, our assurance, all of it. Think back with me to our text from last week. Romans chapter 3, 27-31. to 31. In particular, verse 31. Paul is adamant that the law is not overthrown by the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works. You remember this. He raises it, right? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul's adamant about that. And this is because, as we thought about a week ago, all of the law's requirements were fulfilled by Jesus, and the entirety of the law's curse was endured by Jesus. So the law is upheld. So this matters as well. Like, brother, why are you being so particular here? Because this. Justification, beloved, could never be this. It could never be what I'm about to say. Faith does something, and then our works do something. It can't be that. Because our works are imperfect. Track with me. If our imperfect works are a part of our justification, then the law actually is overthrown. Why is that the case? Because if our imperfect works are even a part of our justification, in order for that to be so, the standard of the law would have to be so dramatically lowered for God to then look at anything that we've done and say, yeah, I'll take that. It's not how it works. Another thing, justification could never be this that I'm about to say. Faith itself is counted as our righteousness. It can't be that. Why? Because in saying that, you're effectively saying this. Faith, even though faith is not really righteousness, God will look at faith and count it as that. It's not really righteousness, but he'll look at it and say that it is. This arrangement, too, would overthrow the law. The gospel, listen, the gospel did not come to change the demands of the law. Not at all. The gospel did not come to lower or affect the standard of the law at all. The gospel did not come to establish a new kind of law in which faith is now meritorious. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law and endured its curse and that what he did is credited to sinners by faith. Now listen, Christ's righteousness is our whole and only righteousness. We've said that. And that righteousness, beloved, is real righteousness. Do you understand why that matters? It's not some facade. It's not some bait and switch where God says, believe and I'll kind of count that as though it's something it isn't. No, believe so that real righteousness under the law could be given to you. That's the good news. It really, the righteousness of Christ, while it is not ours inherently, is really credited to our account. And we who were ungodly, who were enemies of God, have been brought from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. And we have received forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. I hope it lands on you as good news that God justifies the ungodly. I hope so. It's the only hope we have. All of this by faith in Jesus. So again, in our text today, Paul is obliterating merit, our merit not a particle of it remains. To the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I trust this is clear to you. None of us will seek the righteousness that God gives by faith unless we understand ourselves to be ungodly. Does that make sense? No one would ever seek the righteousness that God gives by faith unless we first understood ourselves to be ungodly. This sheds a lot of light on how Jesus interacted with people during His earthly ministry. It sheds a lot of light on how in particular He interacted with those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous sheds a lot of light on how Jesus interacted with people who thought that they could, maybe I'm not righteous today, Jesus, but I can achieve righteousness under the law. He was direct and even exacting, dropped the hammer on people. What was He doing? He was crushing people with the law so that they might understand themselves to be ungodly and so that they then might seek the righteousness of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know that they don't have anything to bring. Who know that they don't have anything to offer. Who know that they're debtors to grace. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. those who know they don't have a righteousness of their own and are looking outside of themselves for it. Friend, if you sit here today and you're assessing your life and you think, you're doing okay. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you tend to think that you're doing pretty well. May the Lord humble us all with the holiness of His law as we considered last week. May we all be reminded that we have nothing of our own to bring. May we see ourselves in our flesh as ungodly people who are desperate for a righteousness we don't have. And may we rejoice that God has provided such a righteousness for us in Christ. May he grant us faith to trust that to trust him. So all of that fell under the example of Abraham. We're now going to consider the testimony of David. This will be briefer, obviously. The testimony of David from verses 6 to 8. So Paul again is going to appeal to Scripture. He appeals to Psalm 32. It was read earlier in our service. Paul's already appealed to the particular case of Abraham, and now he's going to further confirm the truth of what he's written through the testimony of King David. In verse 6, put your eyes there. This is significant. Paul says that David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from faith. And then he's going to cite the first verse and a half of Psalm 32, which we read in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, much could be said about those verses alone, that it's not that there aren't lawless deeds, it's that those lawless deeds are forgiven. It's not that there isn't sin, it's that that sin is covered. It's not that there isn't sin and iniquity, it's just that God will not count it against the blessed man. But connecting these verses, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, connecting those verses to what Paul wrote in Romans 4, 6 is really significant. Putting Paul's verse 6 together with the citation of Psalm 32, we see this, that the forgiveness of sins, the covering of sins, and the imputation of righteousness go together. Say that again. The forgiveness of sins, the covering of sins, and the imputation, the counting of righteousness to a person, it goes together. Because Paul says, David wrote about, The fact that God counts righteousness to people by faith apart from works. And then he he cites David writing about the forgiveness of sins, the covering of iniquity, and God not counting sin against a person. So for your sin to be forgiven, your sin to be covered, for God to not count your iniquity against you is the same thing, right? As saying that righteousness is imputed to you. Those things go together. We've said this before. If we tell people that to be justified is to be forgiven of sin, to be justified is to be as though you never sinned. That's good, but that ain't the gospel. That's only part of the news. Justification is to be forgiven of sin. It is to be as though I've never sinned or been a sinner, and it is to have the righteousness that Christ accomplished and achieved. It's all of that. So we see those things going together right here in the mind of the apostle Paul. David wrote about a righteousness that's counted to sinners by faith apart from works. And then he cites David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sins are not forgiven, nor are sins covered where righteousness is not imputed. Just gonna make sure everybody's good with me here. Sins are not forgiven, nor are sins covered where righteousness is not imputed. These things go together. That's the argument of the apostle in citing Psalm 32. And when the righteousness of the Savior is counted to a sinner, none of that sinner's unrighteousness can remain attached to him. Amen, somebody. All right, now, how? I want to take a moment here. How are sins forgiven? How are they covered? How is it that God does not count them against us? How is it that we would be found righteous? Listen closely for the next few moments. It's good that we would take time to answer these questions. I'm, I'm going to give you Bible here. If you're sitting here today and you're a child, if you're sitting here today and you're a younger person, listen closely for these next few minutes. How, how are our sins forgiven? how are our sins covered? How are we counted righteous? Listen closely. If you're here today and you're newer to Christianity and you're not quite sure how you would answer these questions, if someone asked you, listen. Listen attentively. We are forgiven. Our sins are covered. God doesn't count our sins against us and we are found righteous because of the following. Because Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice, an offering. He shed his blood, he gave his life. And you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, why blood, bro? Why that language of blood? What's the big deal about blood? Glad you asked. Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why is that? Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Insert Jesus into Leviticus 17.11. It is the blood of Christ that makes atonement by the life of Christ being sacrificed. And it is given, the blood of Jesus is, for atonement for our souls. Moving forward. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Romans 6.3 We have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 And one who has died has been set free from sin. One who has died has been set free from the curse of the law. And we have died with Christ. Romans six seven and 8 So it is as though, believer, via your union with Christ... Not only did his blood atone for your sins, for the sake of your soul, you, in the eyes of God, died in Christ to the law, to the punishment you deserve. That punishment has been administered in full. And so now you no longer stand in a place where you would receive it because Christ has taken it for you. So it is as though your death under the law that lawbreakers deserve has already occurred because of Christ's representation of you. We move forward. We read in Micah 7, 19, that the Lord has trodden our iniquities underfoot, that he has cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. We read in Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Our transgressions are blotted out with the blood of Christ. God said this through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The Lord also says in Isaiah 53, 11 about the Christ, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted Righteous. The prophet Jeremiah, again speaking the words of the Lord, spoke of a righteous branch that would come from David who would be raised up to reign, to execute justice and righteousness in the land, but who would be called the Lord is our righteousness. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, says to us, Just what he said to Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, all those in Adam. So by the one man's obedience, Christ. The many will be made righteous, all those who are in Christ by faith. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now in what I said just now, did you hear a word about what you need to do? No. Promise of what God alone would accomplish through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Him, His person, and what He did is how we are forgiven, it's how we are absolved of guilt, it's how we are found righteous. As we conclude our time, think with me for just a moment about justification by faith, apart from works, wholly on account of Christ. It's the best news in the world And it produces the best kind of fruit in us. It excludes our boasting. And it gives us peace at the same time. But when we look to our works, when we look to ourselves and what we do, in any measure to any degree, the opposite is true. The good news ceases to be good. You look to yourself at all, the good news ceases to be good and you look to yourself in any measure to any degree, the worst kind of fruit will be produced in us. On the one hand, if we look to ourselves and what we do as even the smallest portion of our standing before God, a lot of self-righteousness and pride is produced. I wonder, Christian, are there ways that you are subtly looking to your works or your zeal or your effort that's fanning the flame of self-righteousness in your heart? Are there ways that you're looking to what you're doing, what you're feeling, to your discipline that's feeding your pride? I wonder, brother or sister, are there disconnects in your doctrine and how you interact with others? You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then do you lack compassion toward other sinners when they fail you? You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then you're harsh and exacting toward others when it comes to the pursuit of godliness. To the extent that you conclude that others around you are just a bunch of slackers, a bunch of fakers. You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then you assume you know the answers before you've even heard from your brother or sister about a matter. May God have mercy on us. If we as a church increasingly have a collective sense of our need of Christ, a collective sense of our need of Christ, what do you think that that would produce in our relationships? Good things. Humility. Compassion. Charity, love, patience, all of that. If we are subtly looking to our works to any measure, to any degree, another kind of bad fruit that's produced by that is doubt, fear. Questioning our standing before God. Even questioning whether or not He loves us. I wonder, Christian, are there ways that you are subtly looking to your works or your zeal or your effort or your affections, your feelings for God that's fueling the fire of doubt in your heart? Are you looking to yourself in a way that's only feeding your fear and maybe causing you to question whether God even loves you or whether He will in fact save you in the end? I wonder... For you, are there disconnects in your doctrine and how you think about your standing before the Lord? Are there disconnects between your doctrine and how you view the Lord's posture toward you? You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then you fall into the trap of hyperintrospection. And you conclude that Jesus must look at you with only disappointment and frustration and anger. You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then you constantly assess your actions, your motivations, and your desires, and you conclude that a real Christian would be much better by now. You rightly affirm justification by faith apart from works, but then you constantly poke holes and ask questions about the quality of your faith, the strength of it, the sincerity of it. Perhaps it's so bad that you've decided that in spite of the promises of God, not even Jesus Himself could save you. Dear brother or sister, if you sit here this morning and you are weary of your own righteousness, you're weary of that effort, that fight to justify yourself, that's a good place to be. And you are in a good place right now. Seek to learn, beloved. Seek to know more. Christ and Him crucified. And seek to learn and know that more in such a way that you would despair of yourself completely in terms of righteousness. For righteousness, despair of yourself. And remember... That Jesus is our righteousness. And all we can say for ourselves is that we were His sin. Jesus took what belonged to us and has given us what belonged to Him. He became what He was not and what He knew not so that we might become what we were not. Namely, the righteousness of God. May God give us mercy and give us grace and give us faith. May he write his truth on our hearts and may he fix our souls on his promise.